well then, let's kick it off. Um, new episode of uh, Step Zero and a new guest. Um, this time with uh, Antonella Aguilera Ruiz. I hope I'm saying it right. Yes. <laughs> uh, Antonella is a naturopathic doctor and the founder of uh, an online mental health clinic called uh, Wild Lemon Health. Antonella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. It's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And we we had a couple of conversations before we hit record, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I we gathered some notes on what more or less we want to we want to cover on this uh, on this chat. And I think there's a lot we could cover. I believe we could easily speak for a few hours. Yeah, I uh, think so too. <laughs> let's see. Let's see if I can pinpoint a couple of topics where I I would definitely um, hear your thoughts on. And uh, well, the first, I believe, obvious question for you um, on my end is, um, uh, what is naturopathic medicine? I'm sure that you, mm-hmm. you, you're asked this all the time. I know that you've uh, taken part in other podcasts before this one, but uh, you know, do me a favor and uh, once yeah. again, explain for me, like, what do we mean by that? Yeah, so I think naturopathic is a term that actually has a lot of confusion around it because I think there's a philosophy and then there's like the licensing and accreditation pieces of that question. So from like a professional standpoint, it's looking at the body, one as an interconnected system. So we're thinking of the like complexity of the system, right? That your digestion isn't separate from your brain, that isn't separate from your cardiovascular system or your bones, that all of those pieces are working together. And that when we think of a symptom that we're trying to look at the root cause of that symptom. So often I'll give the example of headaches, for example, that if someone is having constant migraines, instead of just looking at a medication that might reduce the pain of that migraine, we're also looking at the things that can be causing it that might be a hormonal component, it might be a dietary inflammatory component, it might be related to stress, so that we're looking at those pieces as well in, in treating them or offering solutions so that therefore you have less migraines and you need less pain medication. From a practical standpoint, especially in the US, there's sort of naturopath as like a traditional approach to healing, which is different than a naturopathic doctor, which is um, that they've done like postgraduate education, they've gone to an approved naturopathic medical school, there's a licensing board, they're overseen by a licensing board, and then they have to continue to complete continuing education credits in order to hold that title. So Like in California, people can be naturopaths, but not naturopathic doctors. And there's a difference in their license where the naturopathic doctors are actually regulated. Um, You have to apply for a license. You have to maintain good standing and update your education, whereas anybody can really call themselves a naturopath and might be in that holistic healing, but don't necessarily have that advanced training. I see. And you, if I understand correctly, you fall on the on the latter category. So mm-hmm. you're a naturopathic doctor. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. And and is this a, like a fairly new discipline? Is it being like, has this kind of studies been around for a very long time? Uh, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I think as a discipline, it has roots probably in the 1800s. And a lot of those like philosophical roots are actually in Germany and in Europe around ideas around hydrotherapy, like 
I often think of the idea of a sanatorium, which now you think of like a sanatorium and it's not something good, but like during the time of tuberculosis, right, people would go to this place where they could heal or they could eat well, be in nature, have hydrotherapy. They might be treated with herbs and restorative treatments that those sort of philosophical roots have existed, um, especially in Western medicine and in places like Germany from like the early 1800s. And then that got translated to um, different institutions um, in the US as I think it's fairly new and not as widely accepted because there aren't as many schools. So there was eventually that transition towards like pharmacology and what we would see now as conventional medicine of like a traditional medical school and residency and training. Um, and so there's only five accredited colleges in the United States compared to all the thousands of medical schools that they are. Um, but I think for me being in practice now for a little bit more than 10 years, think for a long time those things have seen like their intention like they're antagonistic to one another but I think there's this wave like where we can actually sort of stand shoulder to shoulder and we just have a different tool set right like I have the tool set that I can think about supplements I can think about mind body medicine and nutrition whereas like a gastroenterologist knows how to do a colonoscopy knows how to treat someone for ulcerative colitis knows when they need surgery, right? Like those things can actually really complement themselves. Um, so I think the relationship they have is changing, even though it's not as common to have a naturopathic doctor or an integrative practitioner. And, and why do you think that is? I mean, um, it, you know, if, I, if you ask me um, about, mm -hmm. uh, about um, you know, naturopathic medicine, naturopathic doctors, um, first thing that comes to mind is, well, it's a, fairly new discipline simply because I haven't heard a lot about it let's say you know um, a few years back yeah uh, why do you think there is this uh, let's call it binary view sort of almost opposed mm -hmm. view uh, between the typical orthodox medicine and uh, what you practice yeah I think that's actually like a really big question because I think on the one hand like if we give both sides the benefit of the doubt, I would say on the one hand, I think there's probably a nervousness within the like conventional medical establishment that the natural approach or integrative approach could potentially cause harm. So for example, if someone has cancer, right? And they go see a, a integrative practitioner, or a natural practitioner, that person might have a really highly specialized diet or a highly specialized set of supplements that they're promising can cure someone's cancer. And we might actually not know that that's true or there's strong evidence for that. And so someone who has a cancer diagnosis and is scared of chemotherapy might go to a practitioner and be like, oh my gosh, if I eat green apple juice and don't eat meat and take all these supplements, I could cure my cancer. But if that person doesn't know the cost benefit ratio to choosing that treatment, they might be foregoing something that could save their lives. So like if you're sitting with a conventional medical hat, like I can see how that would make someone uncomfortable, right? Like is that person getting the, the appropriate consent to make that choice around their treatment, right? If they know, right? Like 
this treatment might help the chemotherapy might help to this degree, right? And they're making that choice fully and with their own autonomy, right? That's probably their choice and we have to stand back. But if they don't have all the information and they're making a choice that could cost them their quality of life or their life, I think that leads to discomfort. Then if we sit on the other side, right, we put on the hat of someone who's in integrative medicine and wants to look at the root cause and really wants to like fill in the gaps of care around conventional treatment. I think it feels like the conventional doctors are like, oh, your diet doesn't matter. Exercise doesn't matter. Or you have to do this. There's no other choices. Whereas an integrative practitioner might be like, you know what, for your brain and cognitive health, we actually have a dietary pattern that could prevent Alzheimer's or slow it down. Why is that not being talked about in conventional medicine? And so it feels like they're in competition. But I do have this hope that I think things are shifting where the integrative doctors are saying like, we want to do, we want to offer our patients the best, the whole buffet. Like we want them to have all the choices and be able to reflect their values, their health, their health goals, and choose a plan that works for them that can actually pick from both sides because they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like someone could choose to take aspirin when they have a headache and do stress management and eat more whole foods and take some supplements that could help them, right? Those things aren't mutually exclusive. We've just made them out to be because I think we're competing for who's right. But both sides have points that are right, in my opinion, right? It's ultimately should be about the patient, not about who's smarter or wins or has the right answer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a good point. You know, obviously, as a, as a patient, and I've, I have no background whatsoever in, in medicine, mm-hmm. Um, so I see things purely from clearly patient perspective, and um, I I would like to think that I'm given I'm given the full range of information, but that's obviously not usually not the case. Let's put it this way. And I don't know if it's my business to ask, but I've seen on uh, on your website that um, that uh, you are fairly open about your own uh, history, um, and uh, and mm-hmm. you've. Uh, uh, you went through a phase when uh, when you were in your teens, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where you had some some uh, chronic pain, chronic issues, and and I believe that was for you the turning point to uh, let's say take a little bit of a distance from traditional medicine and embrace something that for you was new at the time, right? Can you yeah. maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that's a really um, rich question because now when I look back, I think. There were things that were really beneficial of sort of turning away from conventional medicine and seeking out these different treatments, but it wasn't without harm. There were elements, I think, in that tradi- like in that natural or integrative space that actually created a lot of harm that had to get unwound later. And so to sort of set this up for people, I had been like a really like type a go-getter in high school. I graduated at the top of my class. I went to college and like three weeks into school, I started getting these like recurrent sinus infections. And I stepped, I just kept feeling like I was coming down with a cold and I wasn't sleeping very well. And so I went to the doctor and they did some blood tests and they couldn't give me antibiotics for my sinus infection at that point. Cause I'd had so many, they were actually nervous that I might develop antibiotic resistance. So I was like at this space where I was 
managing them with saline washes, um, like steam, like we were trying to avoid the antibiotics because I had taken so many rounds up to that point. And so I went to the doctor, they did some tests and she came back and I actually had an active mononucleosis infection, which is a viral infection. That's really common in sort of that like early, late teens, early adulthood age, um, where one of the chief symptoms is a lot of fatigue. And I had already had it in high school. And so it was showing up again. And so she literally, and I speak about this so much, I literally remember sitting on the exam table and her coming back and being like, I have no idea what to do with you. I can send you to an infectious disease specialist, or I can write you a script for an antidepressant. And so up to this point, right, I hadn't told her that I was struggling with my mood. I was just kept feeling like I was getting sick all the time. And so I think that's what people can sometimes experience, right? Like it's outside of the toolbox that she knew how to help me and her prescription was an antidepressant or a referral. So I went to the infectious disease specialist. They were like, we have no idea what to do. Like you have chronic mono, like you're tired. I don't know. Like they didn't know what to do either. And it eventually got worse to the point where my like thyroid got out of balance. I got insomnia. I got migraines. I was just like, I kept trying to push through. I was taking all of these credits. And so now when I look back, the true diagnosis then was probably burnout, right? Like we now know that that probably fits the diagnostic criteria for burnout. I wasn't like, I hadn't slept very well when I was in high school. I was swimming competitively. I was playing soccer competitively. I played the violin. I was doing really well in school, right? Like I was so overspent from an energy perspective that it's not surprising that I sort of crashed and like couldn't function anymore. But it was in these natural treatments that someone was like, hey, we really need to look at your diet. We need to like you could start practicing meditation. There's these supplements that could help your hormones. And there was like an actual path out of that hole I found myself in that I hadn't found in conventional medicine. But when I look back on that time, there was also this element where I think this practitioner I saw specifically started to instill this idea that like, if I ate perfectly, if I had the perfect mindset, then I wouldn't ever experience stress. So I think being a perfectionist, I took that as like, oh, if I did have a little bit of stomach upset, or I had a headache, there was something wrong with me that I wasn't doing right. And I would eventually have to sort of like reframe that for myself, right? That we're all human. We're all going to have things that don't work perfectly all the time. It doesn't mean something terrible is happening or we're doing anything wrong. And that was something personally for me that I just had to relearn for myself that health is dynamic. And for me, at least health isn't being perfectly without symptoms all the time. It's being able to navigate them and, and sort of have a toolbox of how to deal with my life on a daily basis. And that's something that I learned afterwards. So that's a very long answer to your question about that it's, time of my life. No, it's the perfect answer. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful you're, you're sharing this um, on, on the podcast. And, and there's, a, there's definitely a few follow-up questions. And, and yeah. there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that I would love to ask you, but I want to I want to maybe go back to the idea of uh, interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you said you said at the beginning of our conversation, and also like in the in the first chat that we had prior to the recording, um, that uh, we are interconnected human beings, and there are 
um, if I may say, like multiple layers of complexity um, mm -hmm. and that we that we somehow need to take into account. Um, so my the first thing I would like to ask you with that respect is, is there any specific aspect of uh, of this interconnectedness that you believe as a greater weight than the others? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we probably underestimate the impact of community and social connection. And it's probably an area of medicine that we don't spend a lot of time on, right? Like so much of what we will talk about is, are people exercising enough? Are they smoking? Are they um, eating too many saturated fats? Are they eating too many chips or processed foods? But in my experience, like when I go for my yearly physical or when I interact with conventional medicine or any medicine for that matter, right? There isn't a lot of emphasis in like relationships and social connectivity and how we are interacting like with the people around us and our sense of connection. And so I think that's an area where we're now starting to see like the importance of groups. We saw this in the pandemic, right, of social isolation, that that has a tremendous impact on our health. And for example, like a sense of loneliness is as much a risk factor as obesity or smoking. Right, that, but to me, that's like a social public health issue but it is affecting our health on an individual level. Um, and I think that's probably an interconnected piece that we miss, right? Like I think we're starting to see that the brain and the gut are connected, that inflammation in the body is connected with chronic disease. But when I talk about interconnected, I sort of mean in the biggest sense possible, right? Like our sense of family or community um, and how we connect to people that also has an impact on our health. So that part is interconnected, right? Our social systems, if we see systemic inequalities and injustice and racism, that's going to affect trauma, which affects the body, right? You can start to like, see how all of these things connect. Um, and I think we probably underestimate the social piece, actually. Those social determinants of health are really big. Is, and, and I know that this is a, this is a, an extremely broad question, uh, yeah. but um, you know, if if somebody is is specifically in a maybe in a work environment, um, feeling this uh, this uh, loneliness, does it necessarily mean that they are not surrounded by enough people, or maybe they're not surrounded by the right people? Uh, mm -hmm. Because it feels like maybe a bit simplistic to say, uh, well you know um social connection obviously is uh, is very important especially due to the fact that we are interconnected uh beings uh, it's probably important that that we develop those those uh that social aspect of, uh, mm -hmm. of our lives and uh, you know one good thing to do is to be is to be surrounded by people like is this is this actually too much of a simplistic approach or mm -hmm. or that's where we start uh, when, whenever we face a problem like this, so I, I hope I formulated my question somehow in a, yeah. in a way. But I guess the, I guess the question is, how do you how do you assess and how do you approach uh, this um, this element of um, of um, uh, social connection um, mm -hmm. in, uh, in in well, I, I would say in professionals, but in people in general. Like, how would you how would you approach this matter at all? Yeah, I think. 
I mean, I don't think it's an oversimplification to say that we need people. I think maybe the other piece of that is that that quality of connection is going to look different for people depending on their personality, their value system, the connections that they have available to them. And so I think maybe one of the most obvious places where people would go is like connection for an extrovert versus connection for an introvert. And having, I think, the grace and the flexibility to know that if you're introverted, your connection might not be the like social mixer hour at work that includes 50 people. But making the time to have like a good quality one-on-one conversation with a colleague that you really like or a friend or a family member, that that needs to happen and be thought of as part of our wellness approach, our wellness strategy. And that I think it's also like just knowing that that time is time well spent, right? That time with people on like, talking right that like human to human connection is time well well spent because I know that like in the hustle and bustle of a work day right that if you need to have a project done it can feel like well I can work till eight and skip dinner with my friends or I can do this and like miss out on that birthday party during the weekend and so I think the other thing that I'm saying is that like we have to we have to put those as equal of importance to our work lives, but that connection and that connection might look like a religious community, right? It might be time to going to church or mass or the mosque or whatever, going to the synagogue, right? And like that creating, being an area where you experience something that's greater than yourself, connection to other people. It might be hiking with a small group of friends and making that a regular routine or having coffee Right. That connection, I think, can look a lot of different ways, but we need to make sure that it's happening and that there's environments where we can have it. Be it in the workplace or our personal lives, of course. Interesting. And and there is a there is a second aspect of interconnectedness that I'm particularly interested in. And I'm still deciding whether it's um, which is, you know, you mentioned health, health being dynamic. And, and the fact that you cannot always have it all. You cannot always have, for example, a perfect, perfect stomach. You cannot uh, uh, sometimes avoid uh, feeling a little, a little tired or, or a little fatigued. Uh, and mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong, right? right. And, and I connect to that, uh, if I'm allowed to, with, uh, with a thing I found super interesting, actually, in your blog, um, in, uh, on, on your website. Uh, which is a difference that you make that I thought is is actually is actually very relevant between um, agency and control. Mm-hmm. So you you and I'll and I'll let you speak about that for a second. But uh, I believe that there is there is a whole aspect uh, of let's say uh, the way you perceive or interpret things around you that uh, that uh, is uh, is extremely important and uh, more or less. Um, the same way um, that uh, that social connections are not uh, spoken about enough, I think uh, this piece is also probably sometimes ignored. So, um, mm-hmm. long story short, what I wanted to ask you is, um, how about the psychological slash uh, philosophical aspect of 
uh, this interconnectedness? Like how relevant is that? What are the first things that come to your mind when I ask you this mm -hmm. question? Yeah, well, I think that topic of agency and control is very much a living question for me and speaks to that, right? Like sort of the meat of that article is if in the integrative medicine space or in anything, right? Like we believe that we have complete control over our health. Where does that leave us when something goes wrong? Right. And the most obvious examples in this is like in the terrible, like heart wrenching circumstances, like when children have cancer, right. Or when someone seems like they're perfectly healthy and they get that terrible bad news around their health, right? Like those are things I think that we need to contend with when we work in medicine and we are entrusted with taking care of people, right? There's always going to be those moments when we literally like just like push up against our own mortality. And so I think that we actually can create a lot of harm in telling people that we have total control over our health because that would mean that we can do things perfectly and avoid all negative outcomes. And I don't think that that's how it works. That hasn't been my experience, right? Like, you know, you see people who die, what we perceive as prematurely, or they're have this chronic, terrible, debilitating disease. And so I can't, for me, philosophically, and sort of in my heart of hearts, I can't live in a world where I feel like it's their fault. Right. Like that there's something that they have done to deserve that. That doesn't fit within my worldview. And so that's where I think I started to think about this idea of agency. Right. If there's something right, like we all know how it ends. Right. Like we all know that we're mortal beings. We can't avoid that one. But we do have agency over aspects of our lives that can create greater ease, a greater sense of well-being, a greater sense of purpose. I think we can heal things even if they aren't physically cured. Like there can be that internal healing of our of feeling at peace with oneself, of feeling connected to those around us, to feeling awe of the things we don't understand and still have something that cannot be cured and sort of feel healed within our spirit. I think that those things can coexist. And so that for me, agency is a really like a guiding principle. I want to live in a world where we have agency and understanding that we don't have 100% control. It sort of takes the pressure off of myself as a patient or as a person. And I see it in the people that I work with when we talk about that. It sort of lifts the weight off their shoulders as well because they're like, oh, so like it's okay on the days that maybe I don't drink enough water, but overall I drink water all the time. Like I'm not creating harm for myself all the time. Because I think it makes the stakes really high to feel like we have complete control over everything. Well, which which uh, could also obviously affect the way we perceive things completely, right? Like mm -hmm. we are, um, you know, usually geared towards negativity as human beings because we want yeah. to protect ourselves at all times, mm -hmm. and uh, and to to say that. You know, to some people initially to say that, uh, you know, bad things may happen, uh, sort of like put that into account, take that into account, deal with it somehow or deal with the idea that uh, that some bad things can happen. But that doesn't mean that you have to adopt sort of a nihilistic approach. That means right. that there is there is, a, of course, like a, 
uh, a wide range of uh, of things that uh, that you can that you can influence and mm-hmm. i believe that, uh, that this is exactly a conversation that uh, that uh, we should have more often uh, between uh, uh, medical professionals and and patients right like sometimes yeah. uh, you know there is definitely uh, a pressure on 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 individuals to think that they have control over everything but there is also i believe an extreme pressure uh, placed on medical or health professionals uh, where you completely entrust them with uh, mm-hmm. with uh, you know with the taking care of of your health uh, yeah. and you don't even give them like the full picture right like so you mm-hmm. you pretend somehow that uh, in a 5 10 30 minute conversation uh, they can uh, they can somehow uh, you know find the solution to 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 all the all the evil in the world and then you walk out of there with no issue whatsoever so I think actually what you're saying is is something that I wish I would hear more often uh, in general in in uh, a lot in 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 many other conversations specifically when uh, when mental health or or, mm-hmm. or well-being in general is addressed right like so to reiterate to to iterate again um uh, we we may not have full control on on our on our well-being uh, but uh, we can we can definitely influence uh, several aspects of our life, right? Is is that yeah. is that more or less correct to say that? Absolutely, yeah. And I think to drive it home as an example, it and we can bring it back to mental health, for example, like the evidence around nutritional interventions in mental health is really exciting, right? We can see we can take two groups. And one is taking medications and doing psychotherapy. And then the other group, we instruct them on the Mediterranean diet. We check in with them three months later, and we see that the group who implemented the Mediterranean diet is has a remission rate around depression at 30%, right? That's incredible. That's incredible to see that a nutrition intervention can do that. I think where we can go wrong or maybe not be as wise is to start to put that nutrition as the thing that we can perfect, right? If you eat this way, then you will not have depression, right? Like if you eat perfectly, then your mood is going to be great all the time. And you're going to feel excited and enlightened and free and peaceful and content all the time. And the wellness industry does that a lot, unfortunately, where I think the conversation should be like, look, this is another aspect of our health that we have some agency over that can help contribute to your well-being. And it can be something that you can do that can positively influence your mental health and help you ride the ups and downs of being human, right? To me, that feels like much more realistic and in a lot of ways hopeful because the the first one of like, if you eat perfectly, your mental health is going to be perfect right? That seems so unachievable, right? Like perfect mental health and perfect eating. I don't know. Those things are challenging. What do you do when you're in an airport? What do you do when you're at someone's house and they give you something to eat that you're like, ah, should I eat this? Should I not eat this? Right. Then it makes everything more stressful than I think it needs to be. One thing that I want to somehow connect to that and and all this Mm -hmm. sort of like mental exercise that one can do into uh, as as for perceiving things differently, is uh, neuroplasticity that I know mm-hmm. you're particularly passionate about. You touched on this topic uh, on a on a couple of pieces on your blog. 
what is neuroplasticity? How does it fit into the conversation? And why should we know about it? Yeah, so neuroplasticity is this sort of finding probably of the last like 20, 30 years of neuroscience that really turned our understanding of the brain upside down. So we had thought that the brain was static, that we got to a certain age, and that if anything, it stayed the same or it deteriorated, that we could have no impact on it. However, we now have like a good body of evidence to say that we can actually affect the brain positively or negatively. So this idea of neuroplasticity is that the brain can adapt or change in response to the environment. So of course, that can be in the negative sense, if someone, for example, has a traumatic brain injury, right, that's going to be neuroplasticity, the brain is going to change in response to that injury, and then it's going to have to heal. But it is also through neuroplasticity that it is able to heal because it's able to rebuild itself and reconnect in different ways. And so this idea of positive neuroplasticity is that if you put the brain and the environment and the nervous system in an environment that has positive inputs that promote neuroplasticity, your brain can learn, grow and adapt and react in a different way. So a lot of these studies that we've done have been on yoga, for example, that it actually changes the structures of the brain. Or if you do mindful meditation for like 20 minutes for eight weeks, and then you go in an MRI, you can actually see that your brain has changed. And so the brain is more connected after those interventions, and its fear response is also going to be less sensitive. So then that's why you go out in the world and the things that might have stressed you out before don't quite stress you out in the same way, or you feel like you have that greater resilience from an internal nervous system point of view. So neuroplasticity is this idea that going back to agency and control is that there are things that we have agency about and our actual physiology can change and update to live and experience the world in a different way. And that can be in response to connection. It can be in response to dietary inputs like fish, berries, chocolate. All of those things have an effect on neuroplasticity, mindfulness, um, you know, training your, your brain in different things, learning in different things that this, the brain is dynamic and it can learn and it can learn to do things in a different way. Do you believe we will ever get to a point where people are 100% aware of what's happening with themselves, with their, with their body, you know, go, with their brain, with their gut, uh, with, with, uh, with their thoughts? Um, is it um, is it the bright future ahead of us in terms of like how well we know each other or ourselves in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think I probably appreciate going on record ultimately as an optimist. I think the arc of justice, as uh, Martin Luther King said, is long, right? Like, I think we do have to think of the long game and I might not see the ultimate fruit of the seeds that are happening now. And I think I, I'm okay with that, like very long sense of time. That being said, I do think that we're discovering a lot of pieces that can lead to a lot of insight and awareness. I also think that it's going to take ethics and wisdom to see how we apply that, right? We are in a state of the world where there's so much like, lack of connection, lack of awareness, harm, 
right? Like how do we apply these insights in a way that helps us become more whole as a society? I am hopeful that we are figuring that out. I think there are signs that we are. It is messy and ugly and all sorts of things in the in-between. I don't think that that means it's not going to come out better on the other side. But I think probably the most fruitful conversations are things like, what is better? Like, now that we have this awareness, where is it that we want to go? Is it progress for the sake of progress? Is it an awareness of our interconnectedness that actually maybe limits our growth from an economic state, but takes care of the people we have in a more holistic way? Do we, like, where do we put our values? Like now that we have tools, how do those tools interact with our values as individuals, as communities, as greater societies, as the world looks at climate change, for example? I think a lot of that is unanswered. And I think there is the temptation to do things for financial gain, for progress, for the sake of progress, that is probably going to come at a cost. So I think there's going to be a fork of like, how do we apply these tools in a wise way? And how do we apply these tools to like hack our way forward? I don't think the hacking our way forward is promising. That probably actually creates pessimism in me. But the like using these tools with wisdom and guidance in which a very clear set of values, I think we are moving in that direction. I don't think it hits the news every day. And I think these conversations are probably happening in unexpected places, but I'm ultimately hopeful. I wouldn't do this work if I wasn't hopeful, right? Like at the end of the day, you have to think we're, we're going towards something. There's something like big and awe-inspiring in the world. And um, I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I, I felt for a second that I threw you under the bus with this question because it was very sort of complicated and broad. <laughs> you handled it super well and I'm happy about it. And I and like I, complicated your questions. Point, <laughs> it was a, I believe it was a really good answer. And I'll 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 wrap it up with this one. Um mm-hmm. we're coming to to an end of our conversation. And obviously sure. I you know I'm I'm extremely grateful that you that you um, um, you know accepted to come on the podcast and and share all this wisdom. I, I believe we could honestly speak for weeks. Um, yes. <laughs> one one thing I meant to ask you, and it's sort of a it's sort of a playful question, uh, but I believe somehow it's important. Let's say you know, let's say you had the chance to to get the whole world's attention right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that you wish you could scream out loud and and <laughs> and uh, uh, let people know in this very moment. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I think you're going to regret asking me this. Um, no, I'm kidding. So I, I am preparing a course in December on the Mediterranean diet for practitioners. And so this might just be like on my mind and on my heart now, but I don't think so. I think this is probably the thing that would yell, that I would scream. I think that the role of food to so many things, there are answers there. And we've underappreciated the impact that food and our food systems can have, quite frankly, on the world and our economic system in our communities and our health. And I think it's something that requires our attention. Um, and 
I do think that the way we eat and what we eat has the opportunity to change the world and change our health. That is huge. But I think it's this intersection and this might seem like this like sharp left turn right from what we were talking about. But I think it's an intersection around economics, climate, um, access, health, right? Like a community and connection, right? Like what happened when we had a harvest in small places and people celebrated squash and all different types of squash. They came together, they drank, they danced, they shared with one another. They had really healthy food that came out of the ground. And we've sort of like overshot to this industrialization. And so I just, I find food this immensely hopeful, challenging, gnarly opportunity for us to do things in a different way. Um, And you might appreciate being Italian, right? Like I worked with slow food, I've gone to Terra Madre in Italy a couple of times. So that's definitely sort of my philosophical background that I think going back to that way of eating can change so many aspects of our society that we're actually experiencing in our health. So that's probably what I would yell and scream about for a good long time. (laughs) I was somehow hoping you would you would mention food and the importance of it. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate it. And Antonella, this being said, it's been an absolute pleasure. I Thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart. And uh, who knows, hopefully um, there will be um, a second episode at some point in time. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.